going to be talking about um, credible mechanisms for dealing with troubled banks. I'll explain what I mean by those as we go along, and I want to see what the connection is. I'll explain something of the connection between those and the euro for you, because uh, that might not be altogether immediately apparent. I'm not planning to go into either all the gory details of the uh, financial crisis and why I think that occurred, nor indeed uh, the eurozone crisis in particular. But my central message will be uh, the following, which I'll come back to a couple of times, that the eurozone sovereign debt crisis is a continuation of the banking crisis which we've had since 2007 and uh, by another name and that the key to dealing with that successfully will in the end be the introduction of credible mechanisms for resolving banks, for allowing, what do I mean by that? That means mechanisms whereby the creditors of banks can lose money if the bank goes bust rather than governments coming in and bailing them out. So just to remind you of a couple of things, so 2008 Governments fearing that losses could not be imposed upon bondholders without also there being losses for depositors chose to bail out banks in lots of ways. Chucked loads of money at them, and they're still doing it. Every few months, we chuck uh, another 10 billion, 20 billion euros at the banking sector. We've rebadged them now. We no longer call them banking bailouts. We call them sovereign uh, bailouts, but they're the same thing. Those bailouts that, they, that we did took the form originally of government guarantees for bonds as well as deposits of the banking sector, and in many cases nationalisation or quasi-nationalisation, so they took ownership or part ownership in these institutions. And those bailouts, that responsibility they took for the bonds of, the, of those banks have imperiled sovereign solvency across much of Europe uh, and in some cases have destroyed it entirely. It's long been known that there are all kinds of very damaging consequences to state guarantees to bondholders. There are some that are particularly uh, noteworthy in the peer in the press. So you're going to have what you're going to tend to do is to um, increase the optimal proportion of bonds in the capital structure from the point of view optimal, that is, from the point of view of the uh, bank, right? not from the point of view of everybody else. So you'll tend to increase the leverage the, um, in the total capital structure. That's the amount of debt which they have relative to the size of the whole thing. The proportion of high quality capital buffers, in particular equity, will fall, so they'll hold less in the way of um, just shares, normal shares. Their liquidity ratios will fall, that means that they're going to hold less cash. The optimal remuneration schemes will involve more risk-taking, there'll be more bonuses, things of that sort in the way that they do things. Uh, and uh, the optimal balance sheet size of the banking sector will rise. The last one that I'm really wanting to focus on just here because it's a little that's important to understand the optimal balance sheet size for the banking sector will rise if you have state guarantees why does that happen well if debt is state guaranteed then banks will want to hold more debt relative to equity than they would otherwise because that debt becomes cheaper well one way to deliver this is to keep the same total amount of equity you keep the same euros <laughs> in equity you take on some extra debt and you increase your total assets. You make some extra loans. So then the bank gets bigger. It's total loans. It's making get bigger. That's what I mean by it. it's an increase in its balance sheet. So if you have a, a very credible guarantee by the state and a fairly small state, so you're not, um, there's no risk of you exhausting all of the lending opportunities in the entire world, then this process will continue until the total banking sector assets are so large that the risk on the government bonds, the risk to the government, rises to the bank's overall cost of capital. Right? In other words, what's happening here is that the bank becomes so big, the fact that the uh, government is guaranteeing it no longer makes it less risky. 
because it's become so big that the government's become just as risky as the bank was in the first place. So that process, it'll just keep expanding and expanding and expanding if you had perfect credibility until the point at which the bank itself, the state itself, is just as risky as the bank would have been in the first place. So we have a number of member states where the, purport, the ratio between the total size of the banking sector and the size of the um, output for the states are absolutely enormous. So here, uh, I hope you can read those. So we, I, I highlight a few for you. So you see the very high proportion for Belgium, banks like Dexia and Fortis. You see the very high proportion for Ireland, um, well-known, notorious in the press. Um, we see an interesting one. It's the Netherlands on there. gets discussed a little bit less. And, of course, we have good old Blighty and Scotland and Wales, uh, the UK, uh, right? So the UK, even larger, even larger than these others in terms of the total ratio between uh, banking set liabilities and the size of the GDP. Well, it's not equally a problem for everybody, right? Just a, a couple of other things perhaps to note. The Greeks here, of course, are very low, right? It's not equally a problem for everybody. It becomes more of a problem to have such an over-indebted banking system with the state providing guarantees if the state itself started more overstretched. Right? If you thought about setting everything else aside, how overstretched was the state to begin with? And if you uh, and states differ in those. So, for example, you see here that the Irish, in um, they ha had debt to GDP of around 65%. Deficit to GDP got to 14%. So they were, because of that huge deficit rather than debt, they were a dodgy candidate even setting aside the obligations that they had to, um, that they took on to support their banking sector. And Ireland in particular made uh, the most blanket of guarantees. It formally guaranteed the entire creditors of the banking sector. Absolutely insane. By contrast, you saw that, uh, so if we went back here a moment, the Germans, for example, right, a bit more than 200%, of GDP there as their ratio, well, don't have all that much debt, 75%, very low deficit that they had, 2009, 3%, I mean, not very low, but low by the standards of everybody else on there. So that was less of a problem for them. And take those Dutch, right? You remember the Dutch had a particularly high level of uh, banking assets, but Dutch intrinsic debt indebtedness was pretty low, 60%, and they had a fairly low deficit. So the Dutch, so far, looked like they should be people that can cope with it. People who are a bit more dodgy, we go back, the, there's the Spanish and the UK, right? The Spaniards there, down there have quite a high deficit, they're not much intrinsic indebtedness. The UK have quite a high deficit uh, and a little bit more intrinsic indebtedness. So that's one kind of factor, if your own government has a bit of a problem. Another kind of factor is how easy it would be to, say, increase taxes on your citizens. How, what, could you get some more money out of them to pay if you needed to? Well, that's going to relate in some way to how overstretched they are themselves. And citizens differ in that. So an interesting case here is that the Greeks, for example, have relatively little household indebtedness. The Spaniards, very high household indebtedness. And it had risen quite a lot during the 2000s. UK, rather high. Germans, more middling. Another kind of a factor that makes things a little bit worse is if you're exposed to other countries in difficulty. So the Belgians, for example, quite exposed to the Irish. So there's a, more of a likelihood of a dominoes effect, right? If one goes under, then you're more exposed to the dominoes falling. So the Belgians have quite high exposure to Ireland, um, French less so, Germans a little bit, and you see the Portuguese there 
have fairly high exposure to Ireland as well. So that's one factor for the risk of the Portuguese, is that if other guys have a problem, then the Portuguese are going to get burnt as a consequence. There's also, you see the Portuguese are pretty exposed to the Spaniards as well. Of course, there are other factors, right? things like your political situation and so on. The Portuguese have about 20% of people vote for overtly communist parties. They even have uh, overt Maoists in uh, Portugal. Quite thought there were many of those in the world. Um, quite a lot of them seem to be in Portugal. And one doubts whether they'd be too keen on repaying debts if they got into power. Of course, you never quite know. A key point to grasp, right? as I said before, the sovereign bailouts are a continuation of the banking sector bailouts of 2007 on. The reason why people feel that they have to bail out these countries is because otherwise, if the states, say, were to default, that would mean that some banks in those countries would have problems because the, the monies which they, <coughs> banks have borrowed from the state would then face a haircut. They'd have to run down that debt. They'd lose money on that. The banks might go bust. That would mean that other banks would have a problem, and that might spiral out. Another kind of a factor is that a lot of these banking sector bailouts are a sort of global coordination, right? So what happens is that uh, you have in the US, for example, there's a whole load of European companies or uh, pension funds and banks and so on that had US bonds. So the US taxpayer stood behind those, kept them going. At the same time, there would be lots of Europeans that held US um, bonds. If one country starts saying, well, we're not saving our foreign bondholders, then taxpayers in another country might say, well, if he's not saving our bondholders, why are we saving his? And the whole thing could unwind. So the whole sort of denial strategy where you want to pretend that you can get away without having any bondholders lose any money could unwind. That's a key reason why they feel that they have to do these sovereign uh, bailouts. That's, that's the most fundamental aspect of it. It's not very polite to talk about that because um, taxpayers in many parts of Europe in particular have lost their uh, toleration for uh, explicit banking sector bailouts, so we have to call them by other names. But we should understand, as sophisticated people, that that's really what they are. They're banking sector bailouts. Every few months we send off another few tens of billions of euros to bail out more banks. Um, that's, we've sort of come to regard this as the new normal. It obviously can't go on forever, but it's been going on for a jolly long time. It's absolutely extraordinary, uh, the toleration that taxpayers have had for this going on for so long. And it's also rather extraordinary in that context that Governments have the sort of Sunday afternoon pace at which governments have engaged with reform here. Because the key thing that they need is credible mechanisms whereby bondholders of banks could lose money without that leading to chaos. So let's just understand this point. What other options than bailouts are there? Right, so first of all, let's understand why they were bailing out people in the first place. Bailouts occurred because banks had large bond holdings, They'd very significantly increased the role of bonds in their total capital structure during the 2000s. They used to have much more in the way of deposits. That used to be a much more significant component of their debt. And they had more equity. What they did done over time was that they increased the amount of bonds which they held legally, the way that things worked out, and extraordinarily, although people had very extensive state guarantees for depositors, they hadn't kind of got around to changing the ranking in bankruptcy rules between depositors and senior other kinds of bondholders. So if you were to ha impose any losses on bondholders, it would be difficult to do that without also imposing losses on depositors and either then having some combination of triggering um, state bailouts for depositors, which might be quite expensive because it would be very explicit what you were doing, but also 
most countries tend to have some sort of system of um, limitations on the amount of support which they provide for depositors. So you'd end up with some depositors losing some money. Very hard to impose losses on senior bondholders the way that these things were structured without there being losses for depositors. Now, it's not true that in everywhere, and this is a quite remarkable feature of things, right, because some countries have systems in which you uh, depositors have preference over other categories of debt, over other bondholders. So if the company, you're familiar with the idea that when a company goes bust, then the bondholders have first dibs on the assets of the company and the uh, equity uh, comes last. Okay, and you probably have the idea that you've got junior and senior creditors, so that the senior ones get first and then the junior after them, and after they've had some, then the equity guys get some. Well, in some countries, they had a system where the depositors ranked above everybody else, apart from the tax man. Right? And in fact, in the UK, we don't even have that. It would be wages, right? Wages and salaries. Apart from the people who actually uh, are salaried employees, they would always count first. But after them, the depositors would count next. So the Swiss have a system that works a bit like that. Uh, remarkably, we never got around to doing anything like that in the UK, so these things all counted equally. Now, understand this point. One of the things that happened was that with this huge increase in the amount of uh, bonds, the ratio of the total assets of these institutions <coughs> to the amount of deposits had increased a lot. So what I'm saying is that they ended up with enormously more assets than they had deposits. So if you had had a system of <coughs> preferred preference for the depositors, then you'd have had to burn through an enormous amount of their notional assets before depositors would lose a penny. Uh, HBOS in the UK had a ratio of about 200%. Northern Rock was more like 230%, right, so the ratio of assets to depositors. So you'd have had to be insolvent to the tune of more than 50%, right, in order for a depositor to lose a penny. And these are regulated institutions that are supposed to have um, actual adequate capital. They're supposed to have a buffer over and above the uh, amount of their assets. It's supposed to be a requirement. So it would be an absolutely incredible regulatory failure if you ended up with 50% insolvency. I mean, that's just unthinkable. Even in the Great Depression, when um, banks failed, depositors typically recovered above 80%. Right? They maybe had to wait for two years. By the time they got their money back, because their money had been tied up for a couple of years, they were, they'd gone bust because they hadn't had the money to pay their mortgages and their farms. But when they finally got the money back, they got about 80%. The issue wasn't an issue of depositors not getting paid their money when banks went bust. Even then, it was a liquidity issue in the 1930s with the US banks. They had this system of where it was hard to impose any losses on the bondholders without, imposing, without losses for depositors, and nobody wanted to be this guy. Right? That slightly grainy picture is President Fernando de la Rue of Argentina, who's fleeing by helicopter. Right? Because the Argentines had a problem, their banks shut, their depositors sat outside. I know most of you were probably playing Pokemon or something at the time, but those of us who are a little bit older, right, remember that people banging their pots and so on outside the banks. They ended up with a bang mob of depositors descending on the presidential palace, and Fernando de la Rue ran away. Now, I would submit to you that Gordon Brown probably wasn't terribly keen on being that guy, right? And then that was a non-trivial factor in the decisions that they made about what to do. You might think, I'm kidding here. No. We know that Hank Paulson threatened to impose martial law in the U.S., right, in order to try to make, the, uh, make Congress pass the TARP, the, the U.S. bailout scheme. He uh, threatened to impose martial law. Okay, so we're talking about that sort of scale of event that they were worried about at the time. That's what happens if you don't have adequate resolution mechanisms.
What other kind of options are there? Well, at the time of the 2008 bailout, many of us said what they're doing is absolutely nuts, right? Absolutely nuts, what they did. And what they should do instead was the following. They should forget about these their capital adequacy requirements because they are irrelevant. They're supposed to stop crises. They're not things which are very useful once you have a crisis in play. First step, not very important, but a first step. First of all, if you've got a solvent institution, lend money to it. Don't recapitalize it if it's solvent. If it's solvent, there's a classic badge-hottian thing, concept of how you deal with them. And you shouldn't confuse, much discussion of banking confuses the um, business of uh, central bank liquidity provision, central bank lending money to uh, banks, and taxpayer provision of guarantees of bonds or of um, equity injections. And they call each of these bailouts. They are fundamentally different things. They are not the same. So when I talk about a bailout, I don't mean standard central bank provision of lending to a bank that has temporary passing liquidity problems. That kind of thing people have done for a terribly long time. Nationalizing half the banking system is not things people have done for a terribly long time. They're fundamentally different. So lend to the ones you can lend in the standard way. Depositors, preferred creditors, rank them above bondholders, like I said. Of course, they'd have all said you violated your, their human rights or whatever, right? So all the property rights that you've had. Maybe some of them would win, right? We'll see you in court. Five years' time, we can sort all of that out, right? The fact that they would all complain and um, had come with court cases wasn't going to make any difference to what was going to happen in October 2008. Take the institutions you believe to be insolvent or near to insolvent into special administration regimes. So what do I mean by special administration regime? These things that existed, it's remarkable that we didn't have them for the banking sector, but there were things for airports, power companies, and so on. They, there were systems under which, although they are systemically significant, you couldn't have power companies just all shutting down and every, all the lights going off all of a sudden, or you couldn't have an, an, a major airport just ceasing to function. There are notions, there are notions in all kinds of industries of systemically significant institutions that you couldn't just allow to stop uh, functioning altogether. But people didn't think that that meant you had to therefore provide government bailouts for them, nationalise them or something. There were explicit systems whereby those companies, the bondholders in those entities, could be forced to lose money. There were special administration regimes, that's what they should have done. In those special administration regimes, the way to do it with the banking sector was to impose debt equity swaps. So what do I mean by that? What I'd say is that I take your equity, sorry, I take your debt, right? you're a bondholder, I say, yep, hello Mr. Bondholder, you've got 100 pounds of uh, bonds, instead of having 100 pounds of bonds, magically tomorrow you will have 100 pounds of equity, and you're going to like it, right? So you, you convert there, uh, or perhaps more realistically, what I'd say is you've got 80 pounds of bonds and 20 pounds of equity, So, because I'm not going to convert all of it. But I do enough, I convert enough to recapitalize the entity out of their bonds. What other companies tend to do, that's a fairly standard mechanism that happens when companies get into financial distress, is that they negotiate with their bondholders. Their bondholders then take over ownership of the entity. It falls in, they become the owners of the, uh, of the company, and that involves a conversion of some of the bonds. They agree to forego the obligations under the debt, but instead they take ownership. That's the kind of thing that should have happened. And if institutions were simply unviable, well, you have to restructure them, have some losses, sell bits off. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that one should have done in um, late 2008. Why do I bore you with telling you what old stuff which people didn't do, other than complaining about things from years ago. Well, because 
from 2011, because what I described, what many of us argued for in late 2008 as what should happen then, is exactly what is going to happen in the future. Right? That's the way things are going in, the, in this sector. If you consider, for example, the European Commission proposals of January 2011, they propose a system of introducing special administration regimes for banks. Those are those systems whereby if you get into trouble, you're taken over, same as an airport, so on. In those special administration regimes, they would impose debt equity swaps in exactly the kind of form, not, well, not exactly the kind of form, I've got a few technical objections, but almost exactly the form which we urged in late 2008. And given that that's exactly what they're going to do, of course, I think one reason why there's a bit of a Sunday afternoon pace about this is it's an embarrassment for authorities around the world. Because, of course, the question arises, well, if this is what you're going to do, why didn't you do it before? I mean, why have we bankrupted entire countries? There could be civil wars in some of these places. Right? The IMF's now warning that there could be civil wars in places. I, I don't think that's an entirely frivolous suggestion. The, the things which they have done have been an absolute disaster. And the reality of what they're going to do in the longer term is this. Right? They are going to do exactly what their critics said um, should be done in late 2008 over the longer term. Now, what they're saying at the moment is that this isn't for introduction until 2012, and it wouldn't apply to extant debt. It's already well saying that now. That's part of this sort of notion that these things are all for the next crisis. Right? So it's all something to do with what happens in 10 years' time. It's nothing to do with what's going on now, because they're still trying to defend the essence of their strategy. How viable that will be through 2011, if we have further problems in the Eurozone in particular, remains to be seen. I think it's highly questionable whether they will really get through 2011 without having further problems in the Eurozone. They came very close to the Irish deciding that they were going to impose some losses on their senior bondholders. That's why the Irish was subject to this uh, EU IMF imposition. They didn't want the money. Right? They said, we don't need the money. They didn't need the money for their purposes. They would have been right. They could have imposed losses on their bondholders in their banks. That was what they were intending to do at one stage. That would have worked from the Irish point of view. The problem with it would have been that the wider strategy would have started to unwind. Relatively few people did these things. The Icelanders and the Kazakhstanis were as close to doing this kind of stuff as, as it gets, though what they did was they imposed losses mainly on foreign creditors, and I think that would, that would be a mistake. Anyway, that's what they were proposing. Could it come earlier? Suppose that you instituted this kind of structure immediately. Well, because the fundamental reason why we've had um, these disastrous bailouts across the financial sector and the fundamental reason why we're still having problems nearly four years on from the start of the credit crunch is because there haven't been credible mechanisms which governments felt that they could trust to allow the functioning of normal market forces for these institutions, that when companies get into trouble, then the debtors lose some money. If you instituted immediately, there wouldn't be any need. You'd, you'd resolve the thing. I mean, I say solve it. I mean, it depends what you mean by solve it. Of course, lots of people would lose some money, right? There'd be some misery associated with that. So solve is a relative term. But from the point of view of a sort of corporatist structure that we have in a number of parts of Europe where the banking sector is so cheap by jowl with governments, partly as a lender to them and so on, that they have almost a role akin to manufacturing industry in some countries in the early 70s where they're listened to with awe, right? That's a peculiar thing in the 70s, of course, when um, manufacturing entities, car companies or whatever, would go bust. 
then you'd see all of their economists would come on the TV and say how it was much cheaper to bail them out than to let them go bust because of the regional blight that would be caused, all the other companies that would go bust if you let them go bust, all the unemployment benefits that would pay, be paid. And we listen to these people now, and we kind of think that's sort of amusing, that anybody gave any airtime to that sort of argument. But somehow when it's not a car company, right, or a steel company, but a bank, and they argue exactly the same thing, then suddenly we all discover the idea of blight and um, systemic risk and so on, and suddenly it's, it's, we, we take it much more seriously as an idea. Fundamentally, if you instituted this kind of procedure, what they're going to do, countries, banks, could default. That would reduce the pressure on those countries that have heavily over-indebted banking systems, because as things stand, the governments stand behind them, and that threatens their sovereign solvency. If countries... Furthermore, were to default from their intrinsic non-banking guarantees-related debts. Much the overwhelming candidate for that's Greece. I mean, they're the people who have kind of had the most fundamental problem. Maybe you could have a problem with Portugal. Italy, I just don't buy. I mean, I just don't see what, can, what circumstances short of global thermonuclear war. The Italians, I just don't, I cannot understand what people are talking about with Italy. But anyway, if you, somebody did default on this, and then that bankrupted other countries' banks, well, they in turn could default in an orderly manner. So you would have no more banking crisis, right? because if an institution went bust, it would go bust. It wouldn't cause some sort of wider crisis. So then there would be no more Eurozone crisis. You'd just go bust or you wouldn't. Wouldn't threaten the existence of the Euro. Job done. <laughs>